I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to our third week of our Black History Month celebration. Now, since Keegan is out of town, we decided to re-release an old episode. And when I say old, I went way back into the archives. I am taking you back to episode six, Black Feminists, Audre Lorde and Shirley Chisholm. I hope that you all enjoy this throwback episode, and Keegan and I will be seeing you next week. Rage on, everyone. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we examine the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. That being said, this is mostly just our opinions. We do try to do some research and get our facts straight for the most part. But uh, generally, it's Keegan and I um, having a safe space to share our opinions and a safe space for you to share yours as well. Yeah, that's right. We're kind of just having um, open conversations about things that we find interesting and fascinating. And while, I mean, I know that we both do 
plenty of research <laughs> and we take a lot of time to like try and make sure we get our facts straight, we may get some things wrong. So yeah. if that's the case, feel free to shoot us an email, shoot us a DM and, you know, let us know slide what you think. Slide into the DMs. Yeah, slide right on in. I mean, especially with like these kind of like book report ones we've been doing, like I know today for sure I'm missing out on so much. Like I am scratching the surface. It's really hard when you're doing... Um, an entire life of somebody, especially yeah. somebody really great, to try yeah. and capture everything about yeah, them. Yeah, you're not just telling one story, you're telling, like, mm-hmm. their whole beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, know? and especially since you and I do try to fit in two different people in mm-hmm. the span of, you know, under two hours. It's yeah, like a <laughs> little over hard. an hour. We are yeah. talkers, too. Yeah, we really are. That's why we're friends. (laughs) So today we are going to be doing for the last week of um, Black History Month. Boom! I know, but we are heading into um, Women's History Month. So good. Which is also very exciting. So for the last week of Black History Month, we wanted to cover some black women who were instrumental uh, to the women's movement and to um, elevating not just black voices, but also female voices Mm -hmm. or... um, Women identifying voices. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Am I going first this time? Because you went first yes, last time. Yes, it's your turn. Okay, so a bit of a bit of like a preface here. I was gonna be doing somebody else and tell us I who just else was, you were gonna be doing. I was gonna do uh, Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Mm-hmm. And because I love the photo of her and Gloria Steinem, and I never really even, like, knew who that woman was, and I was like, that's not cool, because I have it on my keychain, too, and I was like, I need to know more about this person. Right, so if you don't know what picture we're talking about, there's a very famous photo of um, Gloria Steinem and uh, Dorothy Pittman Hughes standing next to each other, both with their uh, fists up in the air. And apparently they're sharing a skirt. What? Yeah. I've never seen below the waist on that picture. I have it on my keychain. I'll show you. And, it, and like, it kind of, it looks like it, but it looks like it, they're just standing in front of something. But can we have that be our Halloween costume and, like, wear sure. one big skirt? Yeah. I'm, we have to do it. I, I am all about it. Okay, <laughs> all about okay. it. All right. I just had to run that by you first. <laughs> but, like, I was really upset because every time I would look stuff up about Dorothy, I would get stuff about Gloria Steinem. And I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting enough information about her. And she's mm-hmm. really wonderful. Like Oprah Winfrey names her as one of like the best moms. Like she's like that's what she called her. She did great a lot of yeah, things for I'm, child I, care. And I will say I don't really know much about her at all. Really, I mean what I what I read from her like she's awesome. Like she's just very very like motherly she's all about child care and making sure that you know while the like minority black families are out working that their children have like safe places to mm-hmm. be and she seemed really really wonderful but i i just I, i'd be talking about her for 10 minutes and that'd be it and that's mm-hmm. she doesn't deserve that so if i'm gonna learn more about her i really want to take the time to like find reliable sources and learn more about her and not just deeper. yeah mm-hmm. So, with that being said, I switched over to Audre Lorde last night. Fantastic. So good. One of my favorites. So good. But I, I've i only been, been looking at her for, like, less than 24 hours. So. Well, the good thing about Audre is that the internet delivers the on The internet straight up delivers. So, <laughs> she was born Audrey, A-U-D-R-E-Y. You'll learn why that's important later. Geraldine Lord. On February 18th, which is today. Happy birthday, Audrey! I think she would be, yeah, she would be like 94. She was born in 34, if my math serves me right, which it probably doesn't. She was a woman of many adjectives. Like, when she would describe herself, 
I know you're checking my math in your head. It's fine. Continue. It's fine. <laughs> um, she just uh, self-described herself as black lesbian mother warrior poet. Ugh. But she's so much more. And that's something for her that she was constantly... I mean, something for me definitely that, that drew me to her and that I really connected with is that she was always kind of expanding what her identity was and always looking for more inside of her, which mm-hmm. is something that I really try to do as well, is to learn the most about myself as I can. Um, so she was born to Caribbean immigrants from Barbados and Car- 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 Oh my God, I literally just looked up how to say this. I think it's Caracu? Caracu. Caracu. Let's just... I'm just going to keep going. I don't have my glasses Um, on, so I can't read. That's fine. So her mother was Linda, and she was mixed race, but she could pass as white, which was a source of pride in her family. Mm -hmm. Her her mom's parents were were a bit racist. There was a lot of colorism going on. And the only reason it was okay with her family to... um, for Linda to marry Byron... Um, Audrey's dad, who was much, much darker. Uh, the only reason it was okay was because he was very charming and had a lot of ambition. And um, she was still very prejudiced against her husband and against... Yeah. She very much looked down upon any darker colored people. Mm-hmm. And Which is so unfair. It's, it's, it's so unfair. Not only is it unfair to the people around you just in general, but whenever you... You've chosen to marry that person. Well, you've chosen to marry them, and then in addition to that, your children are going to be darker skinned than you. Like, that's... It's going to happen, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, that... That just kind of starts the whole outcast thing before Audrey is even born. She was so nearsighted when she was young that she was legally blind, but she grew up uh, listening to her mother's stories a lot about, like, the West Indies. And, and a lot of it was, like, a lot of, like, pretty racist rhetoric. But she was very, very rebellious growing up and would challenge her parents. And her parents were very, very emotionally distant. Mm-hmm. They weren't. They worked a lot. And when they were home, they they weren't warm and fuzzy at all. Not hands-on. No. And, and they just weren't. They weren't warm and fuzzy. They weren't, like, loving people. And I think that from a very young age, Audrey and this was, probably... was very loving. Probably this was, what, like, like, around the, the Great Depression. Yeah. This was in the 30s. Well, the th- yeah, the, yeah, the 30s and then, like, uh, 40s. Early Because she was yeah. born in what year? 34? 34. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's also just a characteristic of that um, time period and the way that people parented back then, too. Definitely. Like, they were just... But, yeah, you hear about, like... Like, when I was talking about Rosa Parks, like, she had... Very supportive figures. She had very supportive... Mm-hmm. And, and Audrey didn't. Like, her mm-hmm. family wasn't all very, like, nearby. She also was the youngest of three girls, and the older girls were very, very close. They kind of excluded her, as I was about to say. She was... She's legally blind. She had to wear, like, corrective shoes. She had a lot of, like, disabilities, mm-hmm. and she was also the youngest, so they felt that she got the most attention, so she kind so of wasn't really... one of... Four one girls? Of three girls. She's one of three. Oh, she so there's two, two older, older sisters. Okay. Yeah. And they she were really, really so close. so much in common with who I'm going to do later. Excited. Well, yeah. what's funny is that they, like, the person who you're going to do later talks about her. Oh, no. Oh, my I God. changed people. I didn't what? tell you. What? No way! No way. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I love my life. Okay. <laughs> so, when she, she was four and she still couldn't speak. So she, like, as she was kind of learning to speak, she was simultaneously teaching herself to read and write. Wow. And she had a lot of issues with communication. She really, um, well, because she had speech issues and she had a stutter and um, she also just didn't really always have the words to be able to describe how she felt. So she started memorizing poetry. So when people ask her how she was, she would recite poems back to her. This reminds me so much of Maya Angelou. 
Because, you know, Maya Angelou was, like, mute yeah. for, like, years and years and years and um, memorized books like, in her head, too. Yeah, and that's, yeah, and it gives, it gave her the words that she needed. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's, there's definitely a lot of parallels where I think yeah. that probably gave them their eloquent speech, yeah. really, too. Like, yeah. they're not learning Elmo, they're learning, like, hardcore Right, it made them poetry. better poets, yeah. Totally. But she started writing her first poems when she was in, like, eighth grade. And the poetry she wrote connected herself to the other outcasts her age. Uh, she grew up going to... She started out going to a, a public school, I believe, where she was the only black child. Mm-hmm. And then she went to a girls' school. And I have it written down somewhere. Oh, uh, Hunter College High School. Mm-hmm. And she was still the only black girl, but that was where she kind of, like, found her, like her like female group so she like they they had like a poetry club where they would like read poems to Mm -hmm. each other and stuff and word that's cool let's start a poetry club oh totally (laughs) (laughs) snap snap (laughs) um but that's kind of like she wanted to connect with other people that were that saw themselves as being outcasts as well oh my god i'm gonna be burping through this entire episode sorry we're drinking champagne oh (laughs) for the second so good week in a row True that. Okay, and for me, the second day in a row. <laughs> so, when she, around that same time, she started spelling her name A-U-D-R-E. When she was teaching herself to write, she, actually, it was probably before this time, because I, I heard on the, a lot of this stuff I got from Wikipedia, but even more of this stuff I got from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that, like, when she was learning, like, her penmanship, when she was writing her name, she's like, that doesn't look right. I don't like that, because of the way her last name was spelled. So she liked the way that the two E's looked the ending of her names like so she just had this like artistic like eye yeah like to look at your name and be like that's not right that's crazy right yeah so it's she she turned her name into poetry she did she really did and uh she writes about it in her book um zami a new spelling of my name she explains that she chose to drop the y because of the way that it was looked and she wanted it to kind of be different than the way that her parents spelled it um, yeah, which again, I mean, I think we talked about this uh, when we talked about Sojourner Truth, mm-hmm. but there's something so like beautiful and empowering to me about choosing your name right? and like deciding who you are. Yeah. You know, I think that's really, really beautiful. I think so too. I really, and, and that's something for me that I've actually thought about doing when I get married. I want to change my middle name because mm-hmm. I think that, I, and, and this is probably something that we need to talk about at some point with taking your partner's name. Uh-huh. I would totally take Chris's name because at this point I feel more connected to that than I do with my father's name. Mm-hmm. And then also I would want to change my name to my mom's name. Oh, her maiden name? Or no, her, her first her, name? her first name. Oh, wow. I think I would do Madigan Elizabeth. I think it's beautiful. Because I think it's cool, like, when you're, like, because when you're getting married and you're changing your name, like, it's a whole You can new, do what like, you want. Yeah. Well, right, but it's, like, a whole new chapter of your life, and you can choose to make these differences. Like, you're leaving that, like, past self behind, and you're, like, You're creating. shedding your skin, kind totally. of. Totally. And, like, I think there's something so cool about taking power over what your name is Mm -hmm. and so kind of getting back to her parents she really didn't have the greatest relationship with them like I said they were they were very tough on her they just like her mom had some like you know internalized racism going on and she and especially with her mother she had a lot of issues and she wrote about it a lot in her later poetry and there's a poem called storybooks on a kitchen table in the beginning of it I'm going to read real quick because it's beautiful It says, out of her womb of pain, my mother spat me into her ill-fitting harness of despair, into her deceits where anger reconceived me, piercing my eyes like arrows, pointed by her nightmare of who I was not becoming. 
She is such a phenomenal writer. I was telling you this whenever you told me um, who you were going to be doing today, but I remember when I was just like a little fledgling feminist, I read Sister Outsider, Mm -hmm. and it's been a really long time since I've, I've read that, but her poetry is so powerful and yes. beautiful and truthful. It, like, it's like everything you read by her, it's like it's just like taking a knife to the heart in a good way. It's so strong. Yeah. It's yeah. just, there's everything everything about it that you hits can, you in the yeah, gut. Yeah, you like, can feel mm. what she was writing when she wrote it. Like, when you read that, you can feel exactly how hurt yeah, she is. Yeah, exactly. And it's not so, like, out there that you're like, this is weird. You know, it's not so descriptive and like, I'm lost. It's just very to the point and beautiful. Yeah, it's just her truth. Yeah. Um, so when she was at the Hunter College High School, it was a school for the intellectually gifted students, which was another thing there. She felt kind of on the outside because she was very smart. She was very, very gifted. Um, she wrote a poem for like their school's like magazine and she got like a letter back being like, this isn't appropriate basically. So she was like, okay. So she sent it to 17 magazine and she was published in 17 (laughs) and got paid for it. Like that's how how old was she? She was in like eighth grade. This is still like her high school. Like she's probably in like eighth or ninth grade. And then she started doing workshops at the Harlem Writers Guild. But again, she felt very outside of there. She was like, I was both crazy and queer, but they thought I would grow out of it. So now, and I feel like that's such a parallel to a lot of people feel like when they're in school. I mean, a lot of Gay kids are just kids who are othered in general. Yes. Like, that's how people and that's look a, at you. And that's a word that they use a lot when discussing her, that she yeah. uses to describe herself, is that I'm sick of being other. So I'm going to start kind of getting into her homosexuality a little bit. Great. She's a proud black lesbian woman. And she really started at a very young age having very intense relationships with women. Like, even before it was, like, romantic, she would have very, like strong female, like, bonds and relationships. Mm -hmm. And when she was at Hunter College High School, she, I think, I think the first kind of, like, I guess, quote-unquote, girlfriend, I think her name was Genevieve, but I could be wrong, but it was a very intense thing. And I don't think, I mean, they were so young, I don't think it was sexual. I think it was just a very, like, Intense emotional bond. Yes, and she... This Genevieve, if I'm getting the name right, actually committed suicide when she was 16. Oh, wow. Which was just... Devastating, I'm sure. Devastating to her. And she she dealt with depression at a very, very young age before it was really recognized as being what it was. And she just kind of went into this downward spiral. But she would continue to have, you know, beautiful relationships with, with women as she went on through... Her life, and it kind of went off and on as she was able to kind of like explore it more. But she she had a lot of secret relationships. And yeah, she kinda, well, I like, mean, especially looking at the time, it would have to be secret, yeah. you know, because at that time, I mean, I'd have to look at the laws. But even some of the laws were yeah discriminatory I against. Think, yeah, she said. I read somewhere that, like, her... Well, the other thing is that she still dated men, mm-hmm. but she would, like, still have female relationships. Mm-hmm. But she always dated white men. So, like, that was, like... Interesting. Was, yeah, she always dated... She married a white man eventually, mm-hmm. which I'll get to. But she, you know, so there was always kind of that mixed relationship kind of, like, drama. Mm-hmm. And her parents knew that she was dating a white man, which which is weird because her mom was so racist against, like, dark skin, but she was also very, like, you're not dating a white guy, it though. Was, it was, it, like, she, a mixed bag. Like, it well, really was, like was a double-edged... she was between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Like, well, then who the fuck is he supposed she, to date? A light-skinned black man is exactly. probably what they wanted. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, 
I might be getting the timeline a little bit wrong here because okay. I heard different things from Wikipedia and from the podcast. But um, at one point, she attended uh, the University of Mexico, which she described as another time of affirmation and renewal. During this time, she continued to have relationships with women and white men. Um, upon returning to New York, she graduated from Hunter College in 59. So it was the school that was like connected to her high school. And at this point, her parents like kind of disowned her. She had to kind of like make her way through. She worked as a librarian and she continued writing and she was an active participant in gay culture of Greenwich Village. So she would go to like these lesbian bars, but she was neither butch or femme. And at that point, and she was black. Like, so she didn't fit into any of those boxes and felt very, like she was just going to this place to try to find a place to belong. I mean, this was at a time when, I mean, obviously, which, I mean, we'll talk about later, obviously the term intersectionality wasn't coined until, like, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But even the idea, I mean, because during second wave feminism, they discussed it a teensy bit. Yeah. You know, black feminists in general discussed it a little bit. But usually, whenever those discussions were happening in the second wave, it was, you thought of it as being either, like, white women who were feminists, or if you were intersectional, it was, like, a person of color and a, and a, and a woman. But oftentimes, we, they didn't talk about those, like... There was like, no homosexual, like... Yeah, I mean, there was a homosexual presence during the second wave of, of, of feminism, but you didn't look at it in, in terms it of it being, like... But it wasn't connected right, as much. Yeah, and if you looked at it like that, then you, it was just, like, we, our brains couldn't handle more than two things. Oh, she was a million you know? things, and yeah. that's the thing. And, and it gets, she gets even more, <clears throat> like, out there as she gets older. Like, she's just like, I am who I am. Um, she earned a master's degree in library science from Columbia in 61. And during this time, she worked as a public librarian again in Mount Vernon. She was the only black employee. Lord also spent time at, I think it's Tugaloo College, Tugaloo College. And like her time at the University of Mexico, very formative again, but this was for more so for her as an artist. Uh, she led a lot of workshops for young black undergraduate students. And this was like in the deep south, I heard too, so it was very like controversial. But she talked a lot with these black undergraduate students about civil rights issues, and she really re- reaffirmed her desire not only to live her crazy and queer identity, but also to devote attention to formal aspects of her craft as a poet. Um, So she started really expressing more of her truth in her Mm -hmm. writing. She continued to become a professor of English. I mean, she she would speak all over the place and talk to different groups of people. At one point, she went to Germany in 84, and she did a lecture when they were kind of coining the term Afro-German because we had African-American. They Mm -hmm. were coining this Mm Afro-German. And uh, she really kind of, like, gave a new light to to the people of Germany for people people like her and it also really made her dig more into her own um, African culture she started kind of dressing more in the African um, traditional African styles Style. and just kind of felt like her there would be ancestry there she you know tried to find like proof of her father's like birth there or grandfather and so mm-hmm. she just she a deep connection to her heritage she just wanted to know everything about herself that she uh-huh. could which I think is amazing and something that I definitely can uh, like feel along with her her poetry was so deeply rooted in the differences in oneself she said i am defined as other in every group i'm part of she would say Mm -hmm. she described herself both as part of a continuum continuum of women and a concert of voices within herself Mm -hmm. so she very much connected with women but she was just this concert of voices in her head there was so much going on at once and she couldn't have it all fit together yet 
Her poetry was published a lot in the 60s, and during that time, she also focused on civil rights, anti-war feminism in her writing. Mm -hmm. She was there for the March on Washington when Martin Luther King gave his speech, but she actually wasn't there for his speech. She heard it in the car with her husband at the time. <laughs> and, um... But she, you gosh, know, what a still, bummer, right? But she still states it as being. I mean, it was still incredibly moving, you mm -hmm. know. And she still states it as being like one of those really like big turning points for her. Her writing is based on the theory of difference, the idea that the binary opposition between men and women is overly simplistic, while most feminists of the time found it necessary to present the illusion of a solid, unified whole. Uh, her writing was always strongly based in race and sexuality. In her essay, The Erotic. As power, Lord emphasizes the importance of exploring one's sexuality fully to grow a closer connection to themselves, which was fucking radical. At I'm the time. sure, yeah. This is before even like the hippie movement. This yeah, this is, is before like, like the feminine mystique or any of yeah, that stuff was going on. Yeah, and she's like, yeah, like ex women explore your sexuality. Don't deny yourself any experience. Well, and like, especially at a time like that, whenever you weren't encouraged to kind of like figure yourself out, how could you possibly? Yeah. And you were just told exactly what you were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. How how were you supposed to know anything else if you, I didn't, mean, if you didn't explore that? The thing with her, it started with her name change. Mm -hmm. She took control completely of her mm -hmm. life. And she was like, I don't have to do anything that these people are telling me. This is the way I'm going to live my truth. And she was a bit of a trailblazer in the intersectional feminist movement, as we said. She felt a connection to the poet Alice Walker's term womanist uh -huh. um, in an attempt to distinguish black female and minority female experience from feminism. Yeah, I actually, um, because I'm in, uh, I, I was in several groups um, that were like black feminism groups. Uh -huh. And a lot of black women, I'd never heard that before. Like, I'd, even though I'd, you know, read some Audre Lorde and things like that, I'd never really heard black women not wanting to label themselves as feminists and instead actively labeling themselves as womanists. I mean, I think it's great. And I think that if you feel like you have to separate it in order for it to feel more... Um, well, they were separating themselves from a movement that they felt didn't serve them. Exactly. You know what and I mean? And if that's what you have to do in order to feel like you're living true to who you are, that's mm -hmm. what you have to do, you know? Um, Alice Walker's comments on womanism is that a womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Right. Um, it's just... it's just a, a bit of a shift from what we know as feminism. And Lord actively strived to change the culture within the feminist community by implementing the womanist ideology. Lord states that womanism allows black women to affirm and celebrate their color and culture in a way that feminism does not. Right. Um, every time I'm saying Lord now, I'm thinking of the singer Lord. <laughs> it just popped into my head. And I was like, that's not No, right. she doesn't get to have that. <laughs> she doesn't get to have that at all. Um... At one point, Lord attacked underlying racism with feminism, describing it as unrecognized dependence on the patriarchy. She argued that by denying difference in the category of women, white feminists merely furthered old systems of the operation, and that in so in doing so, they were preventing any real lasting change. Mm -hmm. Her argument aligned white feminists who did not recognize race as a feminist issue with male slave masters describing both as agents of oppression, mm -hmm. which is crazy because like that's something that you and I have a lot of conversations about the difference between white feminism and regular feminism that is still or I shouldn't say regular feminism intersectional feminism right to us that regular a lot of feminism right that a lot of people don't understand like I when we first started this podcast I was on the phone with my mom telling her because originally we were going to be doing an intersectional episode a while ago mm -hmm. and so I was she was like what is that what is white feminism what and I explained it to her and I was like you know it's, it's an acknowledgement of your privilege and like knowing that feminism is more than just about being 
a right. woman, it's about all of these other things that right. Go and along it, with and it. it's called white feminism because the movement aligned so closely with white middle class women yeah. and really kind of didn't speak to the experiences or the individual or very unique struggles of people of color or people of a, even a different social class. Yeah, you know, it really didn't or disability serve, yeah. or religion yeah. or it was it was very much one type of woman, I feel like, at right. first, that was very And next week, on. you'll hear more about that when we talk about the first suffragettes. <laughs> um, she says, as white women ignore their built-in privilege of whiteness and define women in terms of their own experience alone, that women of color become other, which, like, just the language she's using is, like, language that we are using mm-hmm. right now. Blows, yeah. like, this could, she could have, this could be someone who made a speech yesterday. She had a very modern way of looking oh at, gosh. at life and at feminism. Yes. At a time when Just other people weren't thinking that way. Phrasing. And she Don't had, ignore your built-in privilege. Yeah. Come on, that's amazing. And she had the ability to state it in a very transparent way. Yeah. Like, well, and in a way that a lot of people, even white feminists, wouldn't, like, you know, she did have a lot of criticism, but I think a lot of people also would probably listen to her and be like, oh, because if you're really listening, you cannot argue with that. No, you can't. And and it's, you know, people, whenever you say privilege to somebody who really doesn't understand, they're going to get Their offended. guard goes straight up. It's the same like, thing. No, no, I'm not privileged. What, what do you mean? I've seen hardships. And Buzz's like, no, we're not saying that's not, that. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, even the term white feminism gets people's, you know, hackles raised. And yeah. they get really defensive. Oh, I mean, the first time I heard it, I felt like, oh, does that mean that I'm less of a feminist. You know what I mean? You start to kind of question what that means, but then as soon as you learn more about it, you realize that it's not a bad thing. I always say, use your powers of privilege for good and not evil, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Lord defines racism, sexism, ageism, heterosexism, elitism, and classism together and explains that an ism is an idea what is being privileged is superior and has the right to govern anything else. Oh, that's so... just all the isms. That's such an amazing way to put it. Mm -hmm. She had such a way with words that can make anyone understand anything, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Lord explains that a mythical norm is what all bodies should be. The mythical norm of U.S. culture is white, thin, male, young, heterosexual, Christian, financially secure. So it's like, that's that's this myth that that's what the norm is, but the norm like really doesn't exist. And when you take... I, and I think it's so... Especially coming out of the time that she came out of, I think it's... That's what... Even white men were trying to portray that. Yeah. But even if you just took the segment of, like, white men in America at that time and just looked under a microscope at it for, like, any amount of time, you would start to see all different kinds of variations of people that they were just yeah. trying to bury and hide, you Exactly. Know? And that's the thing that, sh- that she was so accepting of is, like... She wasn't just for one type of people. She was one for the outcasts, whatever Mm -hmm. that meant. In the late 80s, she also helped establish the Sisterhood and Support of Sisters in South Africa to benefit black women who were affected by apartheid and other forms of injustice. And, like, that, I was just like, what? Because I'm, like, I'm trying to get this hashtag sister solidarity thing going. And I kind of want to hear people's sister solidarity stories. And, like... Oh my god, like she's <laughs> she and a couple other women, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, started it all. Mm-hmm. They were like they they did that women in order helping to, women, you know, I think they wanted to they wanted to help stop the innate competition that we are told is just ingrained into us. Oh, don't get a bunch of girls together. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, because women can't help but fight with each other. Right. Well, when, when really, we, I mean, we are absolutely conditioned to do that. Yeah. But also, I think 
part of the power in getting older and, and really discovering female friendships is that you realize this is the best support system mm-hmm. that I could possibly have. And yep. I'm not undermining my male friendships. Not like, at I have all. incredible male friendships, like yeah. f- ones that I value so much. Yeah. But that whole, like, women helping women, we have, like, unique issues that we can help each other with. Exactly. And, you know, women of all variations, really, like, you Bring know, they something say, to the table. you know, yeah. support your sisters, not your sisters. And yeah. Like you know, it's, like, you, we, it's good to just support everybody. Um, so now I'm going to touch a little bit more on kind of her uh, relationships because it's very fascinating. She's very, very, like... Again, ahead of her time when it comes to her <laughs> relationships. Audrey had relationships with both men and women, but she married Ed, uh, Edwin Rollins, or Rollins, when she, and she had two children. And it was pretty much just kind of agreed with them that, like, they wouldn't be faithful, but they would be open to... It was an open relationship, basically. Mm-hmm, an open marriage. And, yeah, and Edwin, though he never came out as gay he had a lot of gay affairs like he was pretty gay <laughs> like for someone who's not gay he was I pretty wonder gay. what I mean I wonder if now with all of our accepted um identities and understanding that sectionary is uh, sectionary understanding that sexuality is a spectrum yeah. I wonder what he would identify as now like pansexual I bisexual? wonder what she would yeah identify I, I do, because I she you know, she loved him, but she wasn't in love with him. Well, maybe you know it's I mean? a maybe it really is like a, a pansexuality where it's yeah. just like you love who you love, and it yeah. makes no it, it makes yeah. no difference. I mean, actually, I think with Audrey, she probably was more a lesbian because she does describe. I her thought love she identified that way. She does identify. She did identify as a lesbian, but she did. She had love for him, but not like a, the love that you should have when love. you get married to somebody. Right. Yeah, but you know what? I think also. It's not exactly what I want for myself, but I think it's also kind of an interesting thing to think about the idea of marrying somebody who you know loves you and is going to be committed to you and is going to be... We have this idea of like romantic love and romantic marriages, yeah. but maybe there's something to be said about committing your life to, to someone and spending your life with someone who maybe you, you're not sexually attracted to or romantically attached to, but you know that that love that you have for that person is going to last forever. Well, you I mean, can I have, think that's kind of where, like, asexuality is going with, like, asexual relationships. Yeah, and you can have, like, a meaningful, it's, lasting yeah. relationship yeah, with someone. Yeah, and it totally depends on the person. For a lot of people, that, that might not work. But for a lot of people, that's probably something they feel needs to be more of in the world and represented more because that's not a normal thing. Um, I, I say normal in quotations, but uh, while she was married to Edwin, she was having a relationship with a woman named Frances, and they it, it was a very again very intense love affair, and they were together for a really long time. Ed and Audrey were really ahead of their time with their parenting style. Uh, they were a mixed-race homosexual couple, spoke openly with their children about social issues. I wrote Audrey was a total 2018 mom and made homemade whole grain bread and limited their kids' sugar intake. Like, what? <laughs> Crazy. She would have shopped at Whole Foods, probably. For and... sure. And she was very... She really wanted her son, Jonathan, to kind of follow in her footsteps of being this, like, activist. And he, you know, as kids do, don't always follow in their par- parents' footsteps. So that was a, a bit of a frustrating thing And for as her. they... As they shouldn't. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. your own individual. Exactly, exactly. Uh, well, things started getting a little shaky in her marriage with Ed because as she was very, very open with having relationships with women, especially mm-hmm. with Francis, he snuck around a little bit more. That did not make her very happy. She's like, if we're going to do this, you got to be like open with me about well, it. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, that's the thing I don't quite Because understand. I think he was, 
I think he was closeted gay, and he okay. just I don't I just don't think he was uh, comfortable with like expressing if, that. If that's the case, how sad is that? Like, I, I, how I, sad that's is probably it? what it was. How sad is it that you're in a relationship with somebody who fully supports and understands what you're going through, and but you that's still internalized homophobia? No, though, I know. You know, like you just can't get past it. Um, from 77 to 78, Lord had a brief affair with a sculptor and painter, Mildred Thompson. This is when her life starts, her health starts to kind of go downhill. And while her health is going downhill, she is still traveling up a storm. She's going to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. She's going back to Germany. And still writing. Going, and writing. I mean, she never stops. Mm-hmm. She never stopped. Um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 78. And um, she first found a lump, and it was benign. And then she, like, basically learned as much as she could about it and started writing about cancer. And then... In 78, when she was actually diagnosed, she already was, like, fully versed in it and, like, was prepared. When she was a little bit younger, she fell in love with a woman who was 27 years older than her and had Mm -hmm. breast cancer and had a mastectomy. Mm -hmm. And so, although she never stated this as being the reason why, she got a mastectomy. I'm sure there was something to do with that influence that she had when she was young. Seeing someone... So she didn't need one medically? She did need one. Oh, okay. She had breast cancer. She had one of her breasts removed. Okay. So she did need it, but but she writes a lot in the cancer journals about how when she got her mastectomy, the sexism that went along with it where, like, doctors and nurses and everybody would be like, okay, when are we getting the prosthetic in? When are we? And she's like, we're not. And, like, they just couldn't fathom why she would only want one breast um and she started dressing really um asymmetrical (laughs) on purpose like she was like this is the way my body is now so i'm gonna celebrate it and i'm gonna do things this way there's something so phenomenal and brave about just her inherent desire to accept herself like it's incredible just this hippie chick she's like she didn't even she didn't want radiation she was like i'm gonna eat only fruits and vegetables and i'm gonna Prey on it, and okay, I'm okay. Well, she did all. Of, I know, I know. If you're but listening she, to this, please don't take that route. <laughs> but she was, she was just like super holistic, and like you know. But this is also like in the 70s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no. But I know people now who who do that. I think I saw oh, something no, yeah. recently, and I was just like, look, man, don't do that. Like, don't do it. We have like science is is pretty good nowadays. Right. Like, please get. But but what's crazy is like she like a few years after they like diagnosed her with cancer she had another cast scan and they were like well it hasn't gotten any bigger she's like cool it's working so she just kept doing it for a while and then it you know obviously didn't and eventually because of her breast cancer she got liver cancer and the book that she wrote the cancer journals won the american library association association i can't say that word either god i can usually say it what happened maybe because i'm like around you it just like transferred to me the gay I can never say this word. Caucus book. Oh, yeah. Kind of makes me laugh. Caucus. Well, get ready, because there's a lot of that in mine. Caucus. <laughs> uh, in 1981. Oh, I also... God, I, I need better endings to my stories, because I fucking... Ha- when did she die? She... Fuck. It's okay. Here. She died. She died. She died. <laughs> she did die. She did die. She died on November 17th, 1992, the year I was born. Mm-hmm. in uh, St. Croix, U.S., Virgin Islands. She really saw the Caribbean as her home. She found that as her home, and she lived with Mildred until she At passed away. At the time away. she passed away? Yeah, they were really... And I believe, I believe it was Mildred or somebody else. One of her... I think it was Mildred. I believe she wrote a book talking about her time with her. I just did some light YouTube searching and stuff like that, and I saw a few things with her, so I definitely want to look into that more. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, she was just this, like, the definition of a free spirit. Like, just And her, had... her writings are just so, I really, like, you will so enjoy reading Sister Outsider. Oh, I'm for you sure going to definitely it. do it. I'm going to buy it, because I don't own it, but it, it was something that really shaped me. And I remember, um, I'm going to a rally tomorrow for um, people against gun violence in the wake of uh, the Parkland shooting. And I thought about writing it on my poster as I think about writing it on my poster every single time whenever I go to a rally, uh-huh. any rally. What were you going to write? I, I always want to write because it resounded so much in me and it's something that made me kind of like come out of my shell. Um, your silence will not protect you. Oh, yes. Because that, that was something that I, when I was reading Sister Outsider, I was just like, oh my God, like it hit me like like a cannonball to the chest, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, your silence will not protect you. Like, no. you can sit there and be quiet and be in your bubble and pretend like nothing nothing's going on. But then nothing is going to change. And, and there's no guarantee that that makes you safe. Yeah. You know, like you're not, just because you can close your eyes to it and it can make you feel it's safe. It's like a little kid who puts their, their bed covers over their heads and the monsters right. don't get them. You yeah, know? but if the monster's coming, it's coming. And, it's coming and it's you know, gonna... It's, it's going to find you somehow. Yeah. Um, for me, just the radical act of self-love, you know what I mean? That's something for me that I am so obsessed with in my own life. Mm-hmm. And to constantly be finding new ways to make myself better is something that I am very passionate about and ways for me to constantly be growing and learning and changing. I don't yeah. think you should ever be satisfied with yeah. the way you are. Love yourself the way you yeah. are, but never be satisfied and say, okay, I'm good enough as the way. Yeah. There's love, always more you can love learn. Love yourself where you're at. But also know that you have so much further to go. Exactly. You know, like there's, and you're you're going to evolve and you're going to change, and you should always be seeking that within yeah. yourself. You know what I mean? Like, right. And that doesn't mean like, oh, constantly be changing your outward appearance, which is I think a lot of times what society sees it as. Like, oh, become your best self. Work out five hours a day. It's like no. It's about if you're going to be. I mean, I'll talk more about this in like our body positivity episode mm-hmm. where it's like. If you're going to be changing yourself, you first have to accept yourself for the way that you are if you're changing the outside. If you're not happy, if you're not, like, okay, just to slightly dip into this, but, like, if you are not pleased with your body right now, or if you're not pleased with who you are in Mm -hmm. your body right now, and I can say this from experience of being very thin, and I was very thin before, and I, I always thought, like, when I would, when I would get that then I would be happy, you know, but I was not happy. I was not happy with my body when I was at the size that I thought I'd be happy with my body at. You know what I mean? It's just like, if you're not comfortable. And it's it's also about not being afraid, I feel like, to let others tell you that you're wrong. And I feel like that's something that she really stood for, like, in the way that she dressed after she got her mastectomy. She didn't want a prosthesis. She lived as a pretty openly lesbian woman. At a like time she, when it was very dangerous and well, scary it was to incredibly, do so. She mm-hmm. was a black woman. Like, mm-hmm. that's dangerous enough. Mm-hmm. Slap gay on top of that. Damn. Yeah, like, and, that's and the time. Scary. Yeah. And so, she, to me, like, that's so who I want to be in my life. I, I want to be so unapologetic. I love making people feel uncomfortable with the way that I, like, radically love myself and, like, with the way that I talk about, you know, myself and the people around me. And, like, reading about her was, like, reading about a, the person that I want to be when I'm older. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like Just the, so comfortable. Just completely at peace. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know... And I'm sure she never even felt like she was completely at peace because you're constantly, you know, you're constantly evolving. You know what I mean? But I need to look it up. There's a Japanese term for um, 
never being satisfied, which is something that you've talked about yeah. before. And there is an actual word for it in Japanese. Yeah. I can't remember what which, it is. God, but... that phrasing can be taken in such no, a wrong no, way. No, like, I'm never satisfied. Not in a bad way. In the best way of yeah. saying, like... I'm always I'm I want to I always want to evaluate where I'm at and see where I'm yeah. going because no one wants to be stuck in the same place forever. No, it's And I'm so happy that I've been able to do a little bit of that for myself and realizing yeah. that I have so far to go but yeah. also like realizing like I'm so pleased with myself with the progress that I've made in I mean, the last five you, years. Don't you feel like even within the last, like, month you've changed so yeah, much? Yeah, absolutely. Because the information that I have, even since starting this podcast, is, like, wild. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah, I think always pursue in that, like, acting in that pursuit of growth and yeah. change and positive change is yeah. just the most beautiful thing. You're you never going to get a negative out- outcome from yeah. that ever. It's the most radical form of self-love that you can do. Most It's just completely evaluate yourself. I feel so bougie right now. I still have like this like faux fur stole. Eye Madigan on my likes to wear my like faux mink stole that I have in my closet when we record. I'm not bougie. I'm not bougie at all. But no, this listen. Makes me feel come, so good. Come to my house, drink a mimosa, wear a mink stole, and feel good about yourself, girl. For I feel like, like I need to just be like I need <laughs> to record one day just in like lingerie and heels and this stole. We can do that. We should do that actually. A lingerie episode where we're when just we, sitting. When we talk about um, when we when we do an undergarments episode, which I want us to do one, you know, yeah. we should totally just do it in lingerie. In a, yeah, I don't have any lingerie. I do, but you shouldn't wear it. No, <laughs> I have like I got like a high waisted like lace underwear from Urban Outfitters, but, like, you will see straight-up vagine when I do that. <laughs> like, it'll be like, this is my vagina. I mean, look. Let's chat. We're all friends here. We're all in friends the closet. Here. I'll tell Anthony to go away for a while. I mean, we just told him that we're gonna be making out in the closet for the next three hours. That's what He's we're He's like, really whatever doing. makes the money, that's <laughs> Only ten more coins, look, guys. Man, you gotta get those listeners. You gotta get those listeners. <laughs> all we have to do is lie to them and tell clickbait. Okay, well, thank you so much for that story, Madigan. Thank I Thank you. Thanks for letting me talk for 45 minutes. <laughs> Damn, I well, need more mimosa. Yeah, um, we're going to go take a mimosa break, and uh, when we get back, we are going to talk about... <gasps> Who? Charlie Chisholm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know, I want to know, girl! Hey there, listeners. Keegan here. Did you know that our girl Madigan is coming out with her own adult coloring book? The inappropriate coloring book is chock full of feminist slogans, curse words, and potty humor, all framed by Madigan's awesome hand-drawn designs. The full book isn't available just yet, but if you'd like to purchase individual prints or just check out what's to come, follow the Instagram page at the inappropriate coloring book, or check out her Etsy page at etsy.com slash shop slash be more inappropriate. My body is ready, Keegan. All right, we're back. Madigan is all banana breaded up. So good. Right? And we've got new mimosas. We're freshly mimosa'd. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are going to talk about one of my favorite people who I'm ashamed to say, um, up until the last couple of years of my life, I did not know who she was. And to me, it's like... I mean, that's how I feel about a lot of like the feminist heroes that I'm yeah, it's, a fan of. It's really upsetting, and... But think of how many years you have to go. Yeah, of course. So but, many years of loving But them. for this woman in particular, I'm shocked that we didn't learn about her in school, and you will find out why. I'm okay. so excited. <laughs> go for it. So, 
Shirley Anita St. Hill was born to immigrant parents, and her parents were also from the Caribbean. Her father was from Guyana, and then her mother was from Barbados. Mm. And um, Wait, what year was she born? She was born in 1924. Yo! Yeah, so very much a a contemporary of of Audre Lorde, really. Like, yeah! A a 10-year difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, because they lived in Barbados for a while, and she, like, visited Barbados. Yeah. That's so cool. So she was born in Brooklyn on November 20th, 1924. She lived in fucking Harlem. I know, I'm telling you. They probably knew each other, to be honest. Oh, for sure. And she was also one of... She was the um, oldest of four girls, so she was the all daughters again. So from the ages of three to ten, Shirley lived with her grandparents on a farm in Barbados okay. uh, in order to receive a British education. Her parents wanted her to not only to receive a British education, but also they were trying to build a home for themselves yeah. in um, Brooklyn. And like her mother was a seamstress, and her father. I can't remember what her father did, but they they were basically like they were just trying to build a nice solid yeah. family life trying to get by. for her the daughters to come back to. So she spent seven years in Barbados going to school. Can <laughs> we go to Barbados one day? That just sounds amazing, doesn't it? It sounds very nice. Anthony and I want to go to um, Aruba next year oh, for his birthday. So we're gonna do it. But when Shirley returned to Brooklyn, she excelled in public school and eventually graduated from the Brooklyn Girls' School in 1942. Upon graduation, Shirley was accepted into both Oberlin and Vassar, so Ivy League colleges. Damn. Yeah, but instead opted to go to Brooklyn College on scholarship. Mm. So she... Smart. Save some money. Yeah. So she went to um, college, and she was encouraged, actually, to pursue a career in politics because of her quick mind and debating skills. Mm. However, she replied that she did not think it was a feasible option due to her, what she described as a um, double handicap, being both black and a woman. She just thought that... She she just thought politics wasn't an option for her, you know? Yeah. Despite not wanting to pursue a career in politics, she remained incredibly active in campus life. She joined the debate team. And when a social club on campus denied her entry due to her race, she started her own and called it Ipothia, which stood for In Pursuit of the Highest in All, (laughs) which is awesome. I kind of want to join that club. Yeah. Let's (laughs) bring it back. we, We totally should. We should have our own Ipothia. I'm down. In 1946, Shirley graduates cum laude and begins working as a nursery school teacher. And in 1949, she marries Conrad Q. Chisholm, a private investigator. Love. <laughs> Love it. I know. Power couple. Yeah, for sure. In 1952, while working as a teacher, she earns her master's degree in early childhood education from Columbia University. Columbia? They both went to Columbia. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And becomes the director of two daycare centers. And this is kind of when... That kind of reminds me of um, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, too, because oh, she yeah. did a lot of, like, daycare, childcare stuff. That's cool. Yeah, and that's a theme that you'll see um, run throughout Shirley's life. And definitely the thing that she, I think, began her passion and began, yeah. like, getting her into politics. Cool. Um Never one to slow down. By 1960, she was a consultant to the New York Department, uh, New York City Department of Daycares, and ever aware of racial and gender inequality. Around this time, uh, Chisholm joined local chapters of the League of Women Voters, the NAACP, the Urban League, and the Democratic Party Club in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood. So Bedford, um, whatever Stuy stands for, I can't ever pronounce it, but the Bedford neighborhood of Brooklyn. 
This club had been working diligently to weed out white leaders of the predominantly black neighborhood who said that they were ignoring black residents. Mm -hmm. So even though this neighborhood was predominantly black and they had like an ever-growing Latino population, the people who were kind of running shit were all white people. And so the neighborhood was really trying to um, amplify black voices at that time. That's good. Shirley was so loud and relentless that eventually the powers that be placed her on the board of directors, hoping that it would shut her up. But <laughs> of course, it didn't. <laughs> and she grew even. She's like, now I have more. Yeah, now voice. they really just gave her a platform. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, to like get shit done. Yeah. So um, she grew even louder and more vocal about community issues until eventually they removed her from the post. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 19... 19- Shouldn't have done that. No. Shirley is going to come back. They're like, we did exactly the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly. And she's just like, oh, yeah? You're going to take me down? Watch. <laughs> no, she just... Honestly, I Hold feel like... Hold my drink. <laughs> she's so incredible, and we'll see throughout this story that I really feel like every obstacle that she... Up until a point, I think every obstacle that like was thrown at her just kind of spurred her on and made her stronger. Yeah. In 1962, a black man was elected to the state assembly, Thomas R. Jones. However, in 1964, Jones decided to step down to pursue a judgeship. And who did the people want to step in to be their New York legislator, state legislator, but Shirley? Because she was so active in the community that people knew her. I love it. And, you know, they wanted her in there. So, like, who wanted, did both men and women want her in there? In her neighborhood, yes. Yes. Because she was so, she was so active and so smart. So, um, she became the second black woman ever to be elected to the New York State Legislature. Love it. During this time, she was able to pass two bills that brought her great pride. One that established a program to help disadvantaged high schoolers go to college, and the other that changed the practice of revoking tenure for teachers who got pregnant. Because, what the fuck? What the fuck? It's like, oh, you reproduced? Yeah, all that work you just did, gone. It absolutely was, like, a practice at the time. But you're not allowed to abort the baby either, because that's not allowed. Right, don't do that. Don't get pregnant outside of wedlock. Just be an old maid, I guess, if you're gonna be a teacher. I mean, I think it's because they expected you to just completely quit working. You know, and not come back at this time. We're talking about a time when women couldn't have credit cards in their own name. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just an in- incredibly oh, messed up time. Were, those were the days, right? So and she, not in a good way. Not in a good way. <laughs> and so she was able to get that changed, though, which is incredible. That is amazing. I mean, the fact that like, it's one of those things where it's like, we talk about the way that, like, laws are made. And a lot of this I know from Legally Blonde. <laughs> it's like, it takes a lot. It, it doesn't... It doesn't take just one person to have an idea about something changing. There's so many hoops that you have to go mm-hmm. through for things to actually change. So the fact that she had this idea and felt so strongly about it but was actually able, able to, to implement, implement it, it mm-hmm. is nuts. Well, like, she's, that's amazing. She's an incredible speaker. Like, um, I'll touch on this a little bit later, but, like, she was able to get things... If, if she wasn't able to get them through, she was able to change people's minds about so many things. Well, and that's interesting. So what we were talking about, Audrey, too, it's just like when she speaks, you can't deny what you've heard. Right. Yeah. You've heard something where you just like, even if you're going to put your guard up, you really just can't deny what yeah, you've you, heard. Yeah. You can't say anything other than, well, I just don't like you. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you can't say that what they're telling or you isn't true agree. or it doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. In 1968, Shirley decides to run for Congress using the slogan Unbought and Unbossed, uh-huh. which remained her slogan throughout her career, was the title of her autobiography. And then in, I think, 2004, 
there was a documentary which I watched in preparation for this episode called Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed. And it's so good. Like That's I, the opposite of Donald Trump. It's uh, Yeah, yeah <laughs> tr- truly. Yeah, truly. And um, I would so... The antithesis. And, like... it's, and it's honestly... Because I feel like a lot of politicians will say things like that because they know it sounds good. But she was... I mean... She seems pretty transparent. Like, everything like what she, you see is what you get. And everything she does, as you'll see, is a common theme throughout her life um, and her career. She does for the people. Like mm-hmm. it, she really is like a, the people's politician. You yeah, know? that's amazing because yeah. there's such. Even like for me now, when I hear about politics, like there's such like a negative connotation because it's like even like the best, like besides Barack Obama, because I love everything about him. Like I feel like there's always like a motive, and Bernie Sanders. Well, I feel like I mean, he's. I feel like he's a good. Nugget. I think. I think even with those people, there there is. I think that they're appealing, and they're they're definitely. Um, I know, but you don't know. That's the thing is, you never know who to trust. It's not. It's not obvious. That's exactly right. Like if you've ever seen the Ides of March, that that movie, uh-uh. I think that is what it drives home for you. Is that it's just like even people who. Or even if you ever watch this kind of a touchy subject now, but if you'd watched um, House of Cards, like, that's kind of, like, the thing. It's just, like, it is just such a a game of, like, a power play, and there's so much deceit, and so much of it is putting on this mask of being... I just don't know, because... No one's transparent. And in order to get ahead, there's so much stuff that they have to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially, well, I mean, if we're going to talk about Barack Obama, like... I mean, we're talking about this woman right now who's a black woman who mm-hmm. is making huge moves in politics. But, like, even when Barack Obama was being elected president, being the first black president, like, there's... He had to have, like... Absolutely, he took money from... Um, I mean, but I... He had, but, no, but, I mean, he, there were probably a lot of things that he had to really do to get just to that point. Because that's not an easy road. Absolutely, and I'm sure there's a certain amount of compromising... Um, which we'll see didn't didn't nec- it, it worked out for Shirley Chisholm in some ways, but in some other ways, her inability to compromise her character and her integrity really didn't help help her. Yeah, career wise, you know what I mean. Right, but I mean, but look, this is this is the person we're talking about right yeah. now, and we're praising for that. Oh yeah, no, amazing. it's it's what makes her so incredible. Yeah, and I mean, if we're and just like to also kind of say like. I'm not saying that, you know, we're not saying Obama did any certain things. And honestly, I'm so glad that he was president and did the things that he did. So I hope what we're just saying is not saying that. No, no, Like, I don't want to get any messages being like, but he did so good. It's like, I know, I love him. I wish he were my dad. He did did a lot of good things. But, you know, a politician is a politician. Exactly. In order to reach that There's always that question mark. You don't know. You you don't know. I mean, and and honestly, there, there is some stuff that I know about about, you know, contributions that he took and things Uh like that, that aren't, they aren't great. You know what I mean? But there's, that's, that's part of any, like, businessman's life is Mm -hmm. that there is, like, a certain amount of compromise that goes on. Yeah. But not for Shirley. But not for Shirley. Shirley's like, "Uh uh-uh. I don't think so. (laughs) Um, So... In 1968, Shirley decided to run for con- Congress on the campaign slogan "Unbought and Unbossed," which would remain her campaign slogan throughout her career. Shirley had a particularly up close and personal campaign style, going so far as to say, "You have to let the people feel you." <gasps> so she would go out Ugh. and go door to door and let these people like shake hands with these people. And I saw like in that documentary, um, you know, she did not care like what color you were, your age. 
anything like that. She mm-hmm. would, you know, hold your hand, come in and give you like a kiss on the cheek and a hug. And how did like, but like if she were going to like white neighborhoods, how did they respond to that? Well, I think this was mostly like in her neighborhood at this Got time and, and, and at rallies and things like that. But uh, she had the distinct advantage also of being bilingual. From, oh, cool. So she spoke Spanish. Love it. And with there being so many um, Latino people in her neighborhood, it really did give her an advantage over her Republican opponent. He was a Republican liberal. So actually, he... Right. I know Madigan just made a face like, uh. <laughs> um, He actually had very similar views to Shirley Chisholm. He was a black man. Yeah. And he had very similar views to her, actually. But... He couldn't relate to the people the way that she related to the people. Yeah. And also he was in, I think, what actually ended up losing him the vote. Besides yeah. besides it being a Democratic neighborhood that was doing the voting. Yeah. And besides her having that very up-close personal campaign style. Uh-huh. I think what in the end actually lost him the vote was his sexism. He was incredibly Which sexist. Which we talked about when we talked about, you know, Rosa Parks and the and yeah. NAACP. He was, he was a black man, but he was super sexist. And he said that they needed a man's voice in Washington, which Oy. there were already a ton of men in Washington. Right. Um, and he called her... He called her a bossy female. Uh-huh. And a like little... Like a nasty woman. I yeah. get you, I get you. And a little school teacher. Ooh, love it. <laughs> so... Throw it at me. Basically, but it, it, it ended up backfiring for him because yeah. basically what she said was, yeah, there are a lot of men in Congress, and what are they getting done, and what can you get done that I can't get done? Okay, so I'm one of those people where I, I need to look at a picture of a person when we're talking about them, and uh-huh. this might be the cutest woman I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Through all stages of life. I'm seeing childhood photos, older photos. Look at, look at her. She has a lisp too. Yo, which this also girl. she has a lisp, which also makes her so endearing to me. <sighs> like I, I didn't, I couldn't find the rights on her campaign speech because I really wanted to play a bit of her campaign speech uh-huh. to really like emphasize what an incredible orator she was. But I, I d- couldn't find the rights on it, and I didn't want to play it if I, you know, yeah. we didn't have the rights. But um, oh my god, she's incredible. She's like. Ugh. So she ended up winning against uh, James Farmer, who was this yeah, you know, super sexist guy. And she won uh, with 67% of the vote. Wow. And became the first black woman in Congress. Love it. Yeah. Girl, get it. So she didn't stop there. Listen, no, she kept of course going. not. Shirley needs more. <laughs> Shirley deserves the best and deserves all of it. <laughs> so when Shirley arrived in Washington, she faced incredible discrimination, of course, from all of her male fellow congresspeople. Mm-hmm. But even so, she said, I have no intention of sitting back and observing. Uh-uh. Which, as a junior congressperson, though, is kind of what they expect you to do. Like yeah. They kind of expect any junior congressperson to sit there and shut up. And not Shirley. Kind of take, not Shirley. She's um, like us. She likes to talk and... And voice her opinion. Yeah, girl, you're going to love this. In her first floor speech in 1969, she comes in hot, slamming the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, fighting Shirley, which is what her like thing was whenever she would, like, um, she would ride in the, when she was campaigning, she would ride in the back of, like, an open bed truck with a loudspeaker. <laughs> and it was, like, fighting Shirley Chisholm, like, coming into, <laughs> coming into your neighborhood, right? What? Mm-hmm. Yes, girl. She uh. she introduced more than 50 pieces of legislation and championed racial and gender equality, the plight of the poor, and ending the Vietnam War. She supported increases in funding 
uh, to expand the hours of daycare facilities. She sponsored a guaranteed minimum income for families. Love it. And she launched a supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children, a.k.a. WIC, what we now call WIC, which is that... um, it's a supplemental program for, like, specializing in pregnant women in, yeah. in particular, but women, infants, and children. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, she was really out there, like, championing for, like, the everyday man, like, yeah. the real people of this country, you know? Ugh, we um, need her now. Working people and, and children. Her. Can you imagine her confronting Donald Trump and being oh. like, uh-uh. Oh, my God. If she was still around, she's one of those people who I totally wish was still around today yes. to comment oh on Oh, my this. God. Like I would, I would follow her Twitter feed. I would, I would, I would get a personal Twitter for this woman. Her and Auntie Maxine are just having tea yeah. and freaking like. Oh, she's Maxine Waters. She's like somewhere in the afterlife, just like <laughs> raging. <laughs> Shirley also worked to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, the mm-hmm. ERA, um, and. So the Equal Rights Amendment basically stated that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on the account of sex. It's time to tackle the most subtle, most pervasive, and most institutionalized form of discrimination that exists. Sex-based discrimination. Love it. Even though it ended up like, spoiler alert, the ERA ended up not being ratified, she delivered a speech to her fellow Congress people. And this is what I mean when I say she was such a powerful speaker, because she's in a room full of all men. And she managed to um, deliver this speech that highlighted the ways in which sex-based discrimination harmed women and limited women's opportunities, basically saying that women were often regulated to lower-paying jobs, women were barred from service in the military. And when she said that, she didn't just say that the military delivers, like, well-paying jobs and women deserve to get those jobs, but she also said... Hey, women want to serve their country too. They're yeah. proud of their country too, and yeah. it's you're not just barring about the them money. from it's doing that it. We have the right to do what we want to do, yeah. and that women were often barred from college campuses, etc. And I don't have the number here, but it was something like two. The the vote passed to try and get this ratified from yeah. Congress with like two hundred something to like thirty. Like she <sighs> was able to convince like that many people. This wow. one woman, you know, and it didn't pass. It. Well, it had to pass like every state, right? And there was this, there was this woman who was coming up at the same time as Shirley on the other end of the spectrum. Her name was oh. uh, Phyllis Schlafly, which like what a she name! She just sounds like Neh. doesn't she? She is. Neh. She she was anti-feminist, and she was really, Donald Trump's grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. She was really fanning the flames of um, fear, trying to like fear monger about. Well, you, you, like it was this benevolent. How are you anti-feminist and then also trying to be a female? Congress person. Uh, well, she wasn't trying to be a Congress person, but yeah, she wasn't, was trying well, to. Well, um, was she, what was she then? Because I thought she was she, like she wasn't. She was just kind of like a voice of oh. like just a, a very prominent voice if of anti-sexism or anti-feminism. That doesn't matter. You're still you're still a woman with a prominent voice, isn't right. that feminism? She, she believed in bene- benevolent. Like, benevolent sexism is what they call it, which is basically saying, like, look, don't you want us to maintain our, our like, um, place in society? Kind of like what I was talking about well, with the gender but truth. Just, but just the whole, like, the whole idea of, of a woman being prominent in anything to me, I feel like is... Well, I feel a that way. Of, like, I feel that way about a lot of women nowadays, too. Oh, it's true. It's, it's one of those things where it just doesn't make any sense. But continue. In an effort to... Shut Shirley up again, because everyone seems to want to do that. Shirley was assigned to the Committee of Agriculture in Congress when she got there. And it's it it is 
um, customary, again, for you to be a junior congressperson to just uh-huh. accept whatever posts they give you, right? Yeah. She did not accept it because, <laughs> as she put it, agriculture was unimportant to her district in Brooklyn because there aren't farmers in Brooklyn. <laughs> you know what I mean? So can't, she can't and, deny it. And I didn't write it down, but there was some quote by her that was really funny because, you know, there's that book, um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Yeah. And she said, I guess all they know about Brooklyn is that a tree once grew there. <laughs> So she took her complaint to the head of whoever it was, and basically they kind of, like, patted her on the head and told her, like, look, you just need to to do what we tell you to do, right? And so then she took her complaint to the House floor and was eventually reassigned to the Veterans Affairs Committee, which was still not her first choice, but she took it, and she was quoted as saying, yeah, but there are a lot more veterans in my district than trees. That's true. (laughs) So, you know, she wasn't one to, like... She wasn't just going to lay down and take whatever people gave her. But, but she was willing to compromise in she some was, way. She was willing to compromise. She wasn't being difficult for the sake of being difficult. No, she was willing to compromise if she thought she could do some good there. Right. You know what I mean? Right. She wasn't that's, still do... something, that's still something for yeah. her to be able to make a difference in. So before I get into the biggest thing that she's really known for, I'm going to just cover some of her accomplishments right do quick. Do it. Um, so 71 to 77, she served in the Committee of Education and Labor. In 1971, she became a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus, which still exists today. Caucus. (laughs) Caucus. They're the ones who, if you watched President... uh, Oh, I hate that I just said that. If you watched uh, Trump's State of the Union... And you saw all the black people in their kind of like... um, <laughs> in their like African robes, who were just kind of like, mm, mm, you know, whenever Trump was talking, they're yeah. they're the Congressional Black Caucus, love it, which is basically black members of of Congress, yeah, who who focused on black issues, yeah. Seventy seven to eighty one, she served as secretary of the Democratic Caucus, love it. In 1977, she served as the first black woman and second woman ever uh, to serve on the Congressional Rules Committee. And she was also a founding member member of the Congressional Women's Caucus. So, Can you she, say that word one more time for caucus. me? Caucus. Oh, girl. <laughs> okay, so, that's a lot. It's amazing. <laughs> that's a lot already. Here's, here's the big thing that I can't believe we didn't know about. You know, especially with everything with Obama and then with Hillary, and you're hearing yeah. first, 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 first. Yeah. Well, well. Shirley Chisholm ran for president. <gasps> Shirley, girl. In 1972, Shirley became the first woman and the first African American to seek nomination for president of the United States from one of the two major political parties. Wow. Her motto remained unbought and unbossed throughout her presidential campaign. In her speech to announce her candidacy, which I suggest you all look up on YouTube because it's amazing, she said, I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate for the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman. I am equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big-name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been an accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate for the people of America. (laughs) And she started facing difficulties right away from from both sides because... Black people didn't want her to talk about women's issues. Yeah. And they thought that she would kind of sell out black yeah. movement for yeah. women's issues. 
and women didn't want her to talk about black issues. Yeah. So she was kind of stuck in um, the middle. But, but Shirley does what Shirley wants to do. Shirley does what Shirley wants to do. And she found that her womanness is actually what caused her greater issue than her blackness because people on both sides, black or white, men on both were sides, sexist. were sexist. Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting racism from one side, but you're getting sexism from both sides. Yeah. Who won that year? That was the year, I think Nixon won. Wow. Yeah. We could have done so much better. I know. Um, But she famously said, The emotional, sexual, and psychological stereotyping of females begins when the doctor says, It's a girl. And tremendous amounts of talent are lost to our society just because that talent wears a skirt. Mm. (laughs) However, despite the fact that Chisholm... You know, so she got... It was a lot of sexism she received. Yeah. But then on the other side of, of the coin, you know, we were just talking about Gloria Steinem. Well, she spent a lot of time with Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug, who were, like, founding members of NOW, the National Organization yeah. for Women. And they were prominent members in the second wave movement. And initially, they all backed her. They yeah. backed Shirley because Shirley's, like, a hardcore f- feminist, you know, yeah. outspoken feminist. But... At the end of the day, like, as things went on, and what was a really sad part of this documentary when you watched Shirley, old Shirley, talk about it, was that these women slowly started to back away from her. Because there were so many Democratic, like, people running for the Democratic ticket that they wanted to... Back someone who they thought would actually win? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And as did... um, members of the Congressional Black Caucus did the same thing. So she had a few people from the Congressional Black Caucus who backed her, but mostly they backed George McGovern, who ended up getting the nomination. So, but she actually, you know, ended up saying, if you can't support me or can't endorse me, get out of my way. You do your (laughs) thing and I'll do mine. And when a reporter asked her who, uh, what she thought of some of her male colleagues of the Congressional Black Caucus disagreeing with her candidacy, she said, I'm looking to no man for approval of what I am doing. Love it. <laughs> so she was, you know, discrimination followed her the whole time. Yeah. She was blocked from television debates. Like, they didn't want her on TV. Uh, and she had to actually sue them yeah. and take legal action in order to get on for just one speech. And I th- she was constantly encouraged to drop out so that McGovern could receive the delegates to clench the nomination. But yeah. she refused to back down all the way to the Democratic convention. Yeah. And part of the reason why was because she wanted to have enough delegates that she could have a bargaining chip. She knew she couldn't win yeah. at this point, right? Yeah. But she wanted to have enough delegates that she could say... Whoever, if it gets deadlocked and I have to break a tie, I can say, I'm going to give you my delegates, but here's what I want. Yes. And, and what she wanted was a... So she showed up, actually, with um, 152 delegates, which was more than a lot of the other... Yeah. I think more than anyone but McGovern had. Yeah. And she wanted to be able to bargain and say, here's what I want. I want a... I want you to have a black running mate on your ticket. Yeah. I want you to have a woman in the cabinet and I want a Native American to serve as Secretary of the Interior because Mm. Secretary of the Interior, they're the people who oversee Native American land. Yeah. And she was like really adamant that a Native American person should be in that post. So she was just intersectional all the way around. I mean, this is the thing, you know, the first thing you said is, I can't believe I learned this in school. Mm -hmm. I understand. I I mean, I don't understand, like, we should have learned about her in school, but, like, she's, like, I feel like she was 
she would have been too radical. Like, I mean, yeah. we think of Martin Luther King, the people that we did learn about, and they were very, very radical. But, I mean, like, this woman, it's, like, one thing after another, just, like, radical, radical, oh, radical. She never, she never stopped and she How never shut teachers, up. And, like, I feel like also, like, with us being from the Midwest, like, can you imagine, like, a Midwest, like, white woman mm-hmm. trying to, like, back in the 90s try to explain? You know what I mean? It's just, well, like... because I think when you look at what she wanted, you kind of have to examine why people push so hard against those things. Because it's not like... You know, I feel like so often when it's a black person, the the thing that people say, you know, is that it's because it's like, oh, it's black issues, black issues all the time. But that's not what she was doing. Like, no. she was pushing for the issues of women and all minorities and yeah. poor people. And yeah. she wanted, you know, even if it wasn't her, she wanted other, like, black people to be in office. Yeah. She wanted Native Americans to be in office who are woefully unrepresented, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's the thing. Is like she again very ahead of her time and very idealistic like she was a very yeah. idealistic person she wanted in our world in the best way um and in her autobiography she also said that i am a national figure because i am the first person in 192 years to be at once a congressman black and a woman proves i would think that our society is not yet just or free Yeah. So, despite losing the nomination and becoming disillusioned with politics, she remained a popular figure uh, when she returned to Congress. In 1974, in a Gallup poll, she was listed as one of the top ten most admired women ahead of Jackie O and Coretta Scott King. Love it! So, but she was really, I mean, she was disillusioned with it. she She, so forgotten? I don't know. Like, that's what I mean. Like... I don't know how I didn't know about her. I only knew about her whenever Hillary was running and somebody was like, hey, by the way, she's not the first person to do this. Yeah. This is the first person who who did this, you know what I mean? And she deserves her, you know, place in history. But she became really discouraged with... Because she she basically was like, democracy is not as democratic as you think. It's no. a lot of, like, underhand deals, yeah. like what we were saying. And it really did bother her because that's yeah. not who she was. Yeah. And in 1982, she became so discouraged with the country's conservative turn after Ronald Reagan was elected that she announced that she would not run for re-election for Congress. Yeah, because it didn't, it didn't, uh, it wasn't complicit with who she was as a person. A- everything she was trying for, it kind of felt like... And it felt like the way the country was going, and I'm sure that whole, like, feeling that she had when she was running, when so yeah. many people were being really progressive, uh-huh. and then seeing, like, Nixon get elected, and then oh, Reagan get elected. Yeah, how and, discouraging. Mm-hmm. So she went on, after that, to teach at Mount Holyoke College, and she co-founded the National Political Congress for of Black Women. In 1991, she moved to Florida and later declined the nomination from Clinton, to become the U.S. ambassador to Jamaica due to ill health. Um, She continued to lecture until her death on January 1st in 2005. Wow. Ten years later, in 2015, Obama posthumously (laughs) awarded her the Congressional Medal of Freedom, and of Shirley, he had to say this. Shirley Chisholm's example transcends her life. And when asked how she'd like to be remembered, she had an answer. I'd like them to say that Shirley Chisholm had guts. And I'm proud to say it. Shirley Chisholm had guts. I love it. <laughs> so that is Shirley. I love it. And you, she's Shirley. one of my new favorite people. Yes. Um, I encourage she's so freaking adorable and endearing. She's so cute, yet she's such a badass. Yeah, she's so endearing and at once so powerful, and you can see her 
she wears her, like, emotion, like, not in the way that people like to say it about women, that they wear their emotions on their sleeve, but in the way that she's, in the way that a man does. Like, she's so upfront and honest about what she's feeling at any given moment. Like, at one point, an interviewer is, like, when she finally gets on the air after, like, petitioning. Yeah. And he said something, she said something about he was who would you support if you um Muskie or McGovern who would you support if you didn't get the nomination and she said well first i'm still in this and you can see her get angry <laughs> and then she's like and two i wouldn't make an answer right now because i don't know who else is on the ticket you know that that's very important who would be their running partner yeah and they were like well would you be interested in being someone's running partner and she was so mad and she was like um I'm running for the president of the United States, and I think I can hold that office. Thank you. Yes! Like, you know. so, I love it. I love it. Yes. So we hope you guys kind of enjoyed today's episode. I enjoyed it so, so much. So did I. So did I. And I hope you learned some new things about some really powerful, wonderful women. Yeah. And I hope you've had a really kick-ass Black History Month. Yeah, for you know? real. I had a very... This is probably the bl- best Black History Month I've ever had. Yeah. Um, and Oh, I was going to add something I totally forgot to say at the end of mine. She changed her name again to Gamba Adisa before she died, which oh, yeah. means warrior, she who makes her meaning known. That's awesome. Because when you were saying that the name of the Black... What was it? Ap- apathy? Not apathy. Uh, ap- apathy. 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 Please don't name your college group, social group, apathy. There's enough of that on college campuses, I feel like. You know what I mean? <laughs> Unless it's sarcastic. <laughs> oy. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Uh, yeah, this was great. I'm really glad that we got to do this together. Yeah, me too. And we will end up eventually doing just kind of like broad feminist topics. I know we did get a message on our Instagram. Thank you to whoever sent us that message. Um asking that we do they really wanted us to cover like a, a topic on periods which we will totally do oh my, we've already been preparing for that. yeah like it's gonna happen don't worry that's gonna happen we're definitely gonna cover more broad topics i know we've been doing themed topics which i don't know if everyone's kind of like into or not but yeah but we i mean i think what's gonna keep it interesting for us too is to be mixing it up but definitely yeah. because it's black history month and then women's history month that we're we're gonna keep it pretty themed for a while but trust me there's yeah keegan has a list like we're booked until like next year of topics <laughs> we want to talk about like it's crazy yeah c- coming in um april we're gonna start doing more broad topics but i'm actually really excited for women's history month me too too. Well, I mean, that's, there's so much that goes into yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of work, but I'm actually really excited to do, um, we're going to, we're going to do, I know we've said this before, but we're going to do, um, the waves of feminism one, one every week. So our first, uh, so next week we're going to cover the first wave feminists and the suffragette movement and what all of that meant. So, you know, if you were interested in hearing that, you know, hit us up, come back. Hit come us back to up. us, and and if you are concerned that we don't have something on our list that you do want to hear, you know, like that woman had contacted us, feel free, like leave us a message and let us know mm-hmm. what you want to hear us talk about. We like criticism, we like comments, we like. I totally want to hear what. Yeah, what are your ideas? That I'm I just so like open hearing, to that. Like because mm-hmm. for me, it's at this point, like we're still so new that it's like, are people actually out there? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it kind of feels I like know, we're talking to we're ourselves. Talking to ourselves. So the fact that somebody did reach out 
And it's someone that neither of us know in our lives. We were like, yes, we made it. We made it. We're big. We have won. Um, So definitely uh, drop us a line. You can can, um, send us a DM on Instagram like that woman did. Our Instagram is Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We do have a Twitter that we don't keep up with, and we're sorry, but it is um, Yamp Podcast. Yamp? Yamp. That's not right. (laughs) It is Yamp. Y-A-N-F Podcast. Uh, Isn't it? It's just Yamp. It's it's hard to say it because it sounds like Y-A-M, like P-H, but that's not it. Um, So, yeah, Y-A-N-F Podcast is our Twitter. And then our email is uh, neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. So um, the, the email address is always in our show notes. So, you know, you can go ahead and click on that if you're using Apple Podcasts. Yep. And we are found, you know, wherever you're listening now, Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play. We are working on getting up on um, iHeartRadio and Spotify and What's some other up? platforms. But yeah. it's just taking a while. So annoying. <laughs> But we'll get there. Yeah, we will. And thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate you. And uh, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.